0: This Women's History Month, Women in Bio is celebrating the community of members who make WIB a wonderful place to be. From coast to coast and the classroom to the boardroom, we are so proud to be a part of the impact the WIB community has in the life sciences and beyond. With webinars, events, networking opportunities, and unique initiatives like Young Women in Bio, WIB has something for everyone at all career stages. To celebrate and grow our diverse community this month, you can use promo code CELEBRATE15 to get $15 off an annual membership. Visit www.womeninbio.org to learn more about the organization and join.
1: podcast for women in STEM and education. I am Dr. Richa Chandra.
0: And I am Dr. Amber Miller. And in today's episode, we're discussing money again, but slightly different in terms of the gender pay gap, which is not a fun concept, but something that is so important because the more we talk about it, I think the more we're going to get the opportunity to helpfully close that pay gap. But before we get into the serious stuff and all of the learning, Richa, how are you dressed for success today? So my
1: my lately my dress for success has been just keep grabbing the same articles of clothing on repeat out of my closet and like they're not even I used to have all my clothes like filed away. Well I do have them filed away by color and like you know shirts and tanks and, and sweaters and um but then I have this like lower level which is just the repeat you <laughs> know outfits because I do my laundry and I just like hang it there and I don't have time to file it. Um so I, I don't know if I've talked about this. This is just a regular red can not canvas what is it called um uh, what's that fabric what, what am i thinking of words escape me um not,
0: what, what is this look so like cotton is it cotton yeah,
1: it's just like a cotton but yeah so uh, there's a word it'll come to me later um just yeah a red comfy balloony shirt because that's what i'm feeling like i guess <laughs> when, when i've got money on my mind my mind on my money and my money on my mind <laughs> But um, how about you, Amber? How did you dress for success today? Well,
0: I was trying to as well. I'm wearing it, it's hard to tell, but it's like an army green color because, right, what doesn't talk money like green? Right. So um, and then I dressed up in a T-shirt with a little blazer, a little like three link sleeve blazer and some jeans. So I was trying to be a little bit classy as well as like singing green for money, because um, again, <laughs> right, like the whole gender pay gap. I mean, visual appearance is also important, which I hate, like I hate all the things that play in or like play a part in what can decide how much money we get paid. Um, And so I was trying to channel my like, if I was going to go talk to my boss about needing some extra money, maybe this is the outfit that I would wear.
1: (laughs) What an idea to show up at a negotiation with like green on. We're so happy to have Amy barnard Bond with us here today. She is a former Fortune Global 50 executive. Amy is an executive coach and consultant who specializes in accelerating the success of Fortune 500 executives and their teams. Amy shaped company culture and strategy for the past 20 years at global companies such as McKesson and Alliance in multiple roles. Um, Amy has been described by Forbes magazine as one of the top coaches for legal and compliance executives. A contributor to Fast Company and Harvard Business Review, Amy is a member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. An expert in workplace culture, corporate governance, and ethical leadership, Amy guest lectures at Stanford and UC Berkeley and presents frequently to associations such as the California Chamber of Commerce, Association of Corporate Counsel, How Women Lead, the Conference Board, Georgetown Alumni, and SHRM affiliates. A lifelong diversity advocate, Amy testified in multiple committees on the successful passage of CASB 826 and WASB 6037, the first U.S. laws requiring corporate boards to include women. That's just star stellar amazing. So we're so excited to have you with us here today.
2: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah. And, and and I'm excited. You know, we get to talk a little bit about some data, um, gender pay gap, right? All of those things. And so um, I feel like we're getting better, right? We feel like we're closing the gender pay gap. But I still think that there's like a bit of a discrepancy because some people feel like, oh, this is not a problem anymore. Like we've solved the gender pay gap. Um, but would you kind of highlight why the earning gap and the pay gap is problematic for society? And if you think there's still like a big problem here?
2: There definitely still is a problem and it just needs continued attention has gotten better which is great um but i'd say big picture it not paying people equally for the same work goes against everything this country was founded on which is a meritocracy and the hard work and the best talent gets rewarded the most and that if people don't believe that you have a meritocracy in your culture which they they test or, or find out on their own when they go through their pay reviews. People talk, that kind of thing. It impacts morale, and that reduces the discretionary effort that employees are willing to put in to an organization, and that really is the competitive edge most companies are looking for in this day and age.
1: So we, we learned in our previous episode, we had um, our guest Anne Morris with us, um, that more women are the primary breadwinners now in society um, for households. And so we were thinking about how this affects the family unit's financial well-being um, when the woman is making less um, for her family than her male equivalent um, is for his family at work, um, or even if her husband um, was in her position instead. Um, Do you have any comments to that?
2: Sure, and this is a complex topic. There are certain professions that women have traditionally gone into more that are lower paid by society such as teaching, um, some administrative work, some, some housekeeping, things like that. So those are things we need to, I think, look at as a society, but putting that aside for a minute on the executive level for many years. And even recently, I just had a client that mentioned to me that, you know, that it's often taken into account your marital status and it's, it's still, I I thought it had completely gone away, but I was shocked just literally last week that a client told me that, when they had their performance review their boss said you know well i gave most of my raised budget to john because you have a husband to take care of you now that was routine in the 60s 70s you know i know but now right crazy and then the other thing we have to think about is that women also take more on emotional housekeeping at work um, there's been some wonderful studies about that whether it's bringing the team together or being the one that comforts people after a riff or, you know, providing just that emotional support. I once worked for a CEO who flat out told me that that's why he had the COO as who she was because he didn't like all that stuff and she was good at it. So I mean, literally, you know, people strategize around that and and we also do more of the caregiving at home. And so to me, if we're paid less, we work more. It's a recipe for burnout. And a lot of women walking out of the workforce and just saying, I can't do all this. So we've seen that. And then the other thing I would comment about that is, um, you know, the more choices women have on balancing all of that, the more choices men have. We know that paid leave, for example, is that women take more paid leave in companies where men also take it because they're worried about the stereotype and the backlash to their careers if they're missing from work, but their male colleague at the same level where they're competing for a promotion isn't taking it. And so um, I don't have the data at my fingertips, but it's a pretty impactful number. And so, you know, us spreading this out and being more open about who's really doing all the work in the relationships and at work is really important, I think, for men to also have these choices.
1: So that example that you just gave with the, um, the boss who didn't give the raise to the, the woman, and, you know, from your legal um, expertise, is that is that even legal? Is that something she would have grounds to um, I don't know, like a lawsuit or, you know, at least com- put in a complaint to HR? That just doesn't sound
2: it's really it's highly risky. Oh, it's okay. highly risky. It's it's um it's that's right. It's, it's surprising to me on so many levels, but also on that because there has been so much more attention paid to sex discrimination in pay and other areas and of course very high profile lawsuits with the Me Too movement and, and many other issues over the past few years.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's still blowing my mind, right, that we've seen so many of these problems have, like, are getting better, and they are getting better, right? And the wage gap is decreasing, right? It's still not equal, which is still a big problem, but I mean, but then to hear stories like this, where you hear these situations that feel like, yeah, are we back in the 1950s, right? Are we, are we, are we still back in, in that era where it was more, you know, predominant? Um, And it just makes you feel, I don't know, sad is part of it, but, you know, just angry a little bit about how it's not, you know, equal or fair and how these things are just continuing to be perpetuated out there. Um, okay, so so part of this, right, and part of having women in different roles and different levels of executiveness or um, hierarchy and part of teams, right, is, is having this diverse talent pool can improve financial performance. But, like, how does having a diverse talent pool really improve the whole company's financial performance?
2: Well, I'd say when, when diversity is fully leveraged at a company, it taps into that creative tension that arises from having people with different backgrounds people from different races or ethnicities and human experience which is a variety of factors it could be where you grew up there's certainly you know growing up in a wealthy family is going to give you a different perspective than growing up in poverty that leads to innovations and ideas and creativity and so when you have a diverse team it's also been noted that that raises conflict which and good good conflict when handled well leads to innovation and that's when you're leveraging product development solutions for customers i mean someone who's for example grown up in a fairly privileged life may not recognize all a, a product that could help lower income people because they would have always had access to the solution there're just so many examples out there really of this so you want to avoid groupthink and that's what you get when you get a homogeneous group there was a recent harvard business review article on vc partnerships and the profitability of comparing VC teams that were homogeneous versus diverse and the teams that were diverse had over 5.5% investment return. So we're starting to see some of these studies You have to be careful because you really have to measure apples with apples for the data to be valid. But we are looking at that organizations are looking at that more and more.
1: I mean, to me, it seems like common sense I, and, you know, the way you described it, that having that conflict and, you know, how that leads to innovation it reminds me of Mad Men when they finally had um, Peggy join, I think, <laughs> right? <laughs> the advertising. Team. Yeah, um, you know, just to have her perspective on we need feminine products to be sold to women, right? For example, like actually market to women. So if it's common sense to me, it's common sense to you. Um, is that what we're seeing though in the corporate world? Are people realizing that and working towards that genuinely, or is it still lip service?
2: There's been a huge push. I mean, the, the Women on Boards movement. Before we passed the legislation, it was around 18% in California, and now it's it's above 20. I think it's 22, 23. Last I checked for for publicly traded companies that we can track, the Russell 3000 index. Uh, privately traded companies you can't track, and so that's a longer game. Boards have to have to see the benefit in it. There's a, a nudge from institutional investors like BlackRock. Larry Fink's letter a few years ago said, "Hey, we're just giving a shot over the bow and give you giving you two years warning on this. But in two years, we're going to be asking how many women are on your boards, and if you don't have a sufficient answer, we're going to pull our funding." That money talks. So as much as the legislation helped, State Street, you know, and other major investors um, that that buy huge amounts of stock. Are are really Calpers, Calsters, um, they are also driving this push, um, and we see that the more women on a board, the more women on an executive team in general. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see, and and I think my two daughters are growing up at a very different time than when I grew up, and there's still yet, you know, progress we made. I'd say progress in big cities, as usual, is and at very very large companies where they can put more resources into identifying diverse candidates going to historically black colleges for example some companies don't have the budgets to do that you know i've worked at companies that did and companies that didn't so there, there are just so many factors to take into account but i do think it's getting better
0: yeah, i mean and it also reminds me of another episode that we had where it's it's also this like you need women in there to help lift other women up mm-hmm. because some, right? a lot of how we get hired still is not just how good you are at your job, but it's who you know and who can recommend you and who to right. sponsor you and so that's really where you know the the group think because if we all are just promoting our friends and everybody is you know the same basically background, um then you're not getting that same amount of diversity or women or you know across whatever diversity standards you want you know you're looking for um and so I think but that getting women on the board but how, and, and I guess it is making a difference because we do see when there are, like you said, the stats you said, when there are more women on the board, you have more women CEOs. But how hard is it for that one woman on the board to actually help make the difference, right? I mean, it, is it like, oh, sweet, we have a woman on there, but we're still not going to value her opinion, right? Or, or is it really more like the, the opinions and the conversations are held on equal footing and they're, they're valuing the different perspectives that are being brought to the table?
2: Every board is different, and so every board member, male or female, is going to need to navigate the politics and the relationship with the CEO and the company, and we have found, just generally speaking, that three is the magic number. Being an only of anything is challenging, and it's almost impossible as human beings for us not to designate that person as the only, you know, whatever it is, and so three out of say 10 to 12 gets you much more where you can actually be viewed more as an individual. And it's not just that person, that woman, that man Mm -hmm. talking. Um, So that's helpful. And there's, there's room to go there, but I've talked to many, talked to many women who were the first and being a trailblazer in anything is, is difficult. You take your knocks sometimes, unless you've got a really supportive CEO, which is fantastic. Um, not everyone has that luxury, and they have to fight to have their voice heard. And that doesn't go just just for women, but there are always board members that are more effective than others.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're trailblazing a little bit in our own world, um, and clearly you have as well. Um, so... We, we appreciate conflict, right? So we, and we do think it's good. And so um, we've we've had a guest before that we had, um, it was Weiss cast under fire. So he disagreed with one of our stances. And so we, we like having our male guests. Um, and one of the Harvard Business Review articles that you wrote, um, you wrote about the pay equity audit, which is, this is the first time I've, I've ever heard of that. Um, and so your stance is that companies need to do this. Um, and so, you know, to, to promote equity, um, our guest that we had on Weiss Cast Under Fire argued um, that it's on women uh, to achieve pay equity through negotiation. That, um, you know, that that's and, and to contextualize it a little bit, um, you know, he, he's not he is an ally of, of women, but he thinks this is the world that we live in. So you still have to do it. It's still on you you can't you know, change the institutions. However, your whole argument is that the institutions do need to change.
2: How do you respond to Yeah, I would say, having been a chief human resources officer and, and a compliance officer responsible for legal and regulatory risk and a CAO, I think that I always felt as a leader that I had an ethical responsibility to treat everyone fairly. And that, um, as I wrote about recently in a, in a different HBR article on retention bonuses, I think that you should pass the public printer test, which is if your the, if your team's salary was printed out and accidentally left on a computer, which used to happen fairly frequently, you and someone brought it to you, you would be able to explain with a straight face and feeling good about it what the differences in pay were and why. And so I do believe that it's incumbent upon people to advocate reasonably for what they are uh worth and to have a a good conversation with their boss if their boss doesn't agree i've done a whole um, assessment on promotability index and written a book on that on how people can advocate for themselves i think that it however is is both an inside and an outside job i think the company if they want to be viewed as a great place to work and fair and they're asking employees to go above and beyond which is happening a lot right now with with riffs and uh, companies needing to double down in the impact of the pandemic and other things, um, you need to be able to say with a straight face that that you're paying equitably and, and as a meritocracy. I do think that that women and and men um, should advocate for what they believe they're worth, um, and I offer you know ways to do that in, in several of my writings. Um, but there's also quite a lot of evidence that there is a likability penalty for women who come across as too aggressive for asking for pay. And so I'd be curious whether your guest talked about that, but how, how women ask is actually a bit more delicate than how men get to ask. As, as the main difference between men and, and women leaders that we see is that both male and female leaders need to balance two things, assertiveness and approachability. The difference between the genders in general across cultures is that men can lean into their aggressive side more and still be viewed as an effective leader. Whereas women need to lean in to their approachability more, or they get penalized for the likability penalty. And there are many public figures and other people we could talk about who I think we've seen that with. And so that becomes challenging in salary negotiations. Um, So that's the only reason I don't think it should just fall to, to women because, um, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if they know they're paying someone, you know, 15,000 below market, they're going to give it to the guy just because he asked and women shouldn't get it. Is that really, is that how you would treat your kids? I mean, I have one kid who's really assertive and another kid that's not. So I'm going to give them something and not my other kid. Why would you do that? What kind of culture are you bringing? I don't understand that. So, um, pay equity audits. We want to talk about that for a bit. Um, some people may not be aware of it. Achieving pay equity is simple. But it's not easy. I lay out four steps in my in my article: um, how to identify and fix pay inequality at your organization right, in Harvard Business Review. And keeping it super simple, a pay equity audit is when you go into an organization and you get a very clean set of data, which means your job titles are aligned. Um, you you know know who's in each job, and and they've been there's ta- that's usually the biggest effort if you if your HR is not really um, tight on that. That can take the most time. Then, once you have a clean data set, then you do a regression analysis. And I don't do this, but other experts do that I mentioned in my article that I interviewed. And that accounts for legitimate differences in roles. Like you could have five people with the same job title, job titles appropriate. But you could have someone who's been there 20 years, someone who's brand new in the role, someone who has their master's in that discipline, and other people who have a college degree um, or who may have had other differentiated experiences, like leading a major project, right? So there are legitimate reasons for having pay differences for that job in that job category among those people. So you figure that out. What are the differences? Are they legitimate? Document it. And then you look at, okay, for the ones that aren't explicable, then we look at the, we look at the outliers. Okay. What about this person who was hired? And this happens a lot. Um, I know from being in HR, people who stay with the company a very long time often, it's unfortunately um, their pay doesn't age well, like the old saying. You have to leave to get a you know a raise of ten to twenty percent. And so, if you're a smart manager, you always know. Gosh, I have to bring that person up. And sometimes I would go behind the scenes and lobby for that. I was like, "There's no way with my pay budget, I'll ever be able to bring this person up. It's completely inequitable. I wouldn't pass the public printer test. I'm not comfortable, right? So you can try to do that. Some companies don't have the budget for that, so you have to. For the next few years if your pay is out of whack at a company this is why comp and HR are so important to get it right the first time to not cave to the overly aggressive person frankly to your colleague's point of caving just because they're demanding it what about the people that are already there that have been worked working for 20 years how does that that does not work well long term um you it's pay now or pay later you know in my opinion because if you're going to pay someone new just because they're new and there's some hotshot coming in and you're going to not be fair, to put it nicely, to the person who has already been working there for a long time. How, what, what you know, what culture are you building? How does that feel? That doesn't feel good to me as an executive. It doesn't feel ethical. So so I feel like it has to come from both and you hopefully meet in the middle. It requires constant vigilance and constant management because of new hires, because of market pay. The difficult thing is when you do salary surveys and market pay and the market pay goes down for a job. We often, we always think, you know, salary's gonna increase, but With AI coming and other things, IT has seen a huge drop, right, in the market. Like 20 years ago, IT consultants were calling the shots, but I mean, look at the market now. So people have to look at it ideally, but it can go up or down, and then you look at all of that, and then you remediate. The third big step is you look at the outliers, you say, okay, what do we need to fix this? Some companies are very upfront about it, which is very courageous because it can lead to lawsuits, so you have to do very carefully, but I... I appreciate the transparency, Intel did a huge, fantastic campaign in doing this and just set aside a budget and a remediation budget and they did it all at once. That's great. Not everyone can afford to do that. So a lot of um, PEAs are are done a little bit on the quiet side and they have like, they have to have like a two to three year plan to say, okay, we're going to, these are the worst outliers. We're going to bring them up now next year we're going to bring up a little more and then we'll get them like three years we'll be golden and then we're going to monitor this so it
1: never happens again so does that does that help any questions yeah i mean it has me thinking about a lot of things you know it's it's great that these large corporations have that much data first of all to do this appropriately and then Started thinking, um, you know, the, the whole argument against large corporations, but maybe this is a good argument to have all these big companies, right? Um, and I wonder how much or what percentage of the of the American workforce is actually at that lo- works work for that level of a company where they could do a PEA appropriately versus, you know, smaller organizations or, you know, I know, like I'm at a small Catholic liberal arts university, for example, right? Um, there just wouldn't be. I think enough data, and I'm thinking as a scientist to do that PEA um, as accurately taking in all those differences variables and variables and looking across the board. But
2: um, there's, I, no, I and I thought of that too because I I appreciate that um, for smaller companies you can do like you can scale it down and ideally your internal HR can do it because not everyone can afford consultants either, right? And so you could pick five job classifications that that you're curious about, you know, one that would do really well under scrutiny that you're like, yeah, I think we've hired a lot of people in recently. I know what the market pay is. We've got salary surveys. You maybe do one that you think, "Mm, I bet this one's out of whack. Right. And then three that are random and you can just, you know, compare the employee compensation and get kind of a, a a bench test of, you know, how are we doing? And then maybe you want to do a deeper dive. Maybe you want to, um, do it as a multi-level project, a few different disciplines a year, that kind of thing. So that can that can work. You can pull the C-suite, HR and legal counsel in to review the results, keep it privileged, would be the reason to bring in legal counsel as well. And it could give you a starter set. It could just, it can just give you a little more peace of mind around are we being fair? You know, and, and is there any disparate impact to a particular group where we could actually get into trouble? Because this is a very hot, plaintiff's area. So, so there's been attention to that, you know, um, but those are some of the things that I, that I would do at a smaller company. At large companies, they find usually they're about 5% are eligible for a pay increase just to give you a a data point.
0: And so interestingly, like how often should this be being revisited, I guess, right? So like, because and like you said, people say you have to switch jobs or go to a different place to get that percent raise and to, you know, basically be able to keep your salary climbing. But if people are hiring new people and like balance, like how do you balance? Like how often should they be actually evaluating? Like, is this annually, bi-annually? Like I do it, takes, what- it takes a while. The first was
2: the hardest. So, but then it gets easier. Um, so, because you usually find things you need to clean up and then like, oh, this job function isn't really... The family, yeah. the job family's off, and then you rewrite it so it's, it's so much easier iteratively, three to five years because we do find and and um a friend of mine, Kelly McElhaney, who runs the egal um, organization at, at haas UCAL Berkeley, just around pay equity um the gap did it they did a huge wonderful longitudinal study with the gap, and even at the gap, who was trying to be super conscious pretty pro women company uh, you know woman founder um and they have so much data, they found that over three to five years, there was just creep and kind of managerial discretion and just, and and probably we don't, can't prove this, but probably we assume some subjective bias was the default reason because there was no logical reason for it. Um, so three to five years, tune up, again, first times the, the lift and then tune up. You know after that, and a consulting company I think could teach you how to do it, so if you had the of dollars, you do it once, they could I think teach you to, to how to look out for the future so
0: I like it well, and then it sounds like i'm I'm a bit back like you in that, like I don't understand why people just don't do the right thing that, or the things that feel like they should be the right thing, and so we also learned from your article right that people or companies and organizations will do the p e a and because they feel like they fall into one of two categories, right? Out of fear of litigation, like we have to do it or by the cultural imperative, like we should do it. And so how do like the different approaches affect the outcome for what might happen as a result of feeling like you need to do the PEA for one of these two reasons?
2: I think being both an HR person and a lawyer,
0: I, I feel like it's
2: wise to do it for both reasons. Um, Sometimes, like it or not, you need to use a legal argument to get the funding. Uh, it's just a practical reality with a board or, or a CEO. Um, and hopefully, you're not doing in reaction to a pay equity lawsuit. Um, you want to avoid that. So, but from a cultural standpoint, and as someone who you know who prefers to inspire people to do the right thing, I would I would want to legitimately be able to go out there to my employees, you know, and you talk to your lawyer about how to how to do this. That's why HR and legal should be like this, you know, on a project hand in glove um, to, to talk about, you know, Hey, we, we're going to be doing this, um, may take us a few years to get it right, but we just want you to know that we care. We're looking at it. We're putting our money where our mouth is with DEIB. And, um, we may not be able to do it all at once. I think that's, that's fair. You could, you could cite your business. We just, we just had a roof or, or we, you know, our numbers have been low or you know, that executives have all taken a pay freeze and the CEO is not taking a raise all the different things we've seen. And, and, um, I think, People will appreciate it. So um, I think, you know, morale and just having a healthy workplace culture where everyone feels valued and respected and appreciated for their work is is so important. We've seen that with all of the job hopping. I mean, especially now that the the employment, the employer employee contract was, was broken a while ago, but a lot of the recent layoffs and how those have been handled in tech have been shocking even for me. And so I don't know what these employers think they're doing long term with Gen Z and other people who are going to be working way after I'm gone, but, uh, they better be focused on this because they can no longer say, oh, come for the free lunch. We love you. or We care about you and your career. We're going to look out for you and you know, we're your family. I mean, really? Some places, some places are fantastic. Some places are run well and they do the right thing. But a lot have not lately, right? Letting everyone go on a Zoom call, turning off their access before they even know they've been fired. How how am I gonna feel about you? You better be paying me fair at least. So this is absolutely foundational to me for the the next generation of how you're gonna treat people, right, because are you gonna believe all that stuff? I don't know makes me sad, but you know, cause I don't believe in job hopping. I actually believe that to develop leaders, you need to eat what you cook. And that usually takes about three years and especially to be a mentor and to to have advice and guidance and counsel from people, make a few mistakes, learn from them, have some great successes, learn from them. You can't learn that in 18 months. And I see so many resumes that are nine months, 18 months. And just like, wow, there's, there's gonna be a lot of, there's just lack of depth. I, I worry about the talent depth for the future. And part of this is, is keeping people, you know, and letting them see a pathway and, and having them trust you. And so that, that's really important to me. And this is super foundational. There's no other way to say, you know, we value than knowing you're paid equally to the person sitting next to
1: you. Yeah, there's just so much there that you just had to unpack. I mean, with the, the layoffs right now, and I, I guess some of the people were on uh, parental paid leave that were, were laid off from from what I've read. And that's, you know, and the tech companies have been boasting about, you know, such great paid leave that, you know, um, they've been giving. So on the flip side, you know, when you were bringing up Gen Z, every Gen Z person I talked to, it seems like at least nine out of 10 of them are like, I don't want to ever have children. Um, And there's all kinds of ramifications from that kind of thinking right uh, further down um, downstream, I guess, when um, we're all old (laughs) and we don't have that that large of a workforce to support um, the economics, but yeah. So, you know, just thinking about the fact that this episode right now is airing one day after um, our gender pay gap day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what the American Association for University of Women is um, reporting is that the present data shows that the smallest wage gap is for women aged between 20 to 24 at 89 percent. Um, and that this is this steadily declines for the increasing age groups up to 75 percent. Um, and I think you're already kind of touching on some of this stuff but what do you think is contributing to that kind of decline?
2: Well, we've done a pretty there the longitudinal studies show that we've done a pretty good job over time with more entry level jobs and jobs that can be more easily uh quantified blue collar jobs. I think unions had a lot in that. Um government you you have, in general, more equity for pay in government and the military. And in more interest, the age range you mentioned is I'm starting out my career, right? I just graduated from college. Where we see it start to really drop off is as women get higher and higher and higher, and and also with BIPOC and people of color. So um, I think part of that is it gets harder to equate the jobs, the higher you get, there's more subjectivity and who's gonna be our CEO who's going to be in the C-suite um, as, as you go up the ladder, and the volume is, is lower. So we don't have quite apples to apples there. Um, that doesn't make it right, but that is my understanding when I've dived deep in it and looked at some of the gender data and people who have spent their lives doing this. That's a large part of it
0: i'm still just i'm just trying to take it all in right it's a lot i was just to another podcast episode on my way home today as you know preparing for this and talking they were also talking about how like ageism also affects women a little bit more than men um in terms of and and it's interesting because they were kind of talking about both sides of the spectrum like when you're fresh out of college like you get a little bit of the patronizing you're inexperienced you don't know what you're doing you know kind of stuff but then as you get older um you know, then they also don't take you seriously, because you're old, and you're not capable of doing like the things that you're you're supposed to do. So I didn't, I don't know, I got a lot more depressed as I listened to the episode on the way home (laughs) to older, you know, people don't take like, they made a comment about a woman who was expensing basically saying it was a business expense because she was not a consultant. She was business expensing her hair dye because she felt like um if she showed up as a consultant with gray hair that they weren't going to take her as seriously and that she was as credible or as capable as if she showed up with gray hair and that just like broke i mean it just breaks my heart a little bit because it's all the things i don't want to do but it's things i hadn't really thought about until like i listened to that and really said oh and like i feel like we're just getting over the hump of i sound like i'm 12 still but like i'm finally at a place where i feel like people are taking me seriously to only then Fall back down as as you progress to an extent. It, I don't know if you if you think some of that also plays into into this. Um...
2: the the ends are the ends are tough. The book ends are tough. So I'd say in the in the I wore glasses as a young attorney to court because I was afraid that the opposing counsel, which was almost always male, would um, try to. You know, I didn't want the new York to know how old I was, so I did that. Um, so I can relate to that, and then. Yeah, now that I'm almost 56, I can tell you that it is interesting to be thinking about that. I I have many. It's a, it's a silent career killer um, if you, and it's tough for women who want to get back into the workforce. Having the child t- childbearing years a whole nother challenge. I I've always been a working mom, and I had to uh, navigate that. I think I was able to do it. I'm very I'm very grateful. I had kids later after I got my JD, and that was very intentional. I wanted to have enough experience and enough power in my role by the time I had kids to where my credibility and my seniority wouldn't be questioned and I could you know work from home on Fridays or leave and they'd know I was working every night and weekend anyway um I had that privilege to be able to do that not everyone has that and I appreciate that but that was my strategy um and it worked um it does get harder my hope is that with the the trends in having less labor than we need for jobs, and the fact that our health, we're taking better care of ourselves, we're living longer, Technology is amazing, and so my hope is that all those things combined will lead to a decrease in age discrimination. Now, I think it's incumbent on people who wanna live and work longer to stay up with technology, I don't think companies, you know, will, will tolerate that. Um, the challenge is salary. I think that um, senior, more senior people are going to need to tolerate having a flat salary, which is something that I even experienced with people on my team who hit a pay top for the market. Who I had to have meetings with and say, "I'm giving you this bonus. You're amazing. I can't. You're getting a zero pay increase because I need to bring these other people up." and you're topping out to market. And those were very difficult conversations to have and keep the person motivated. So I do a lot of other things, give them stretch assignments, give them visibility to senior management, know what motivated them, you know, but those conversations already happen now. So I just see that moving up because the other risk, and this just happened to someone in my family last week, um, they've worked at the same company for 30 years. They're amazing at what they do. They've got more experience than anyone in sales. And they were told kind of out of the blue, one of the top tech companies, look, sorry, but we either need you to retire or we're gonna let you go. And if you retire, you'll get severance. If we have to fire you, you won't. Well, he was planning on working for five more years. He's only 62 and he looks 50 and he's energetic and he knows all the tech. Um, So that sucked, you know? And I hear that more and more. My sister-in-law who's an executive, she's like, they can come for me any day now. My salary's high. I know I've got a big dollar sign on my forehead, and she's spent her whole career, which is very rare, you know, at, at an automotive company. And she's just like, "Yep, it's basically just the way it is." I've had to do it to people, and it could be done to me. and So that that bums me out, you know, too. I think younger women, you've got more you can do. You can work on your executive presence. You can work on setting your boundaries. Saying no to the right things is one of the key things as a leader. Um, you can have. A wing woman back you up in meetings. That's a great strategy where if you're going into a meeting, you don't feel like your voice is being heard. You make a pact that if one of you says something, you back the person up. I love what Amber just said, says Risha, because you know it does this, this, and this. So you can be each other's echo chamber. Someone t- If someone takes credibility for your or credit, for your response on something, you say, you know, Risha just mentioned that like 10 minutes ago. I'd like to hear what she has to say about that. Like, don't let them get away with it. You know, there are things that younger women need to strategies that you can implement early on to avoid that.
1: It's interesting that you're giving us that perspective of the, the bookends, right. And the, the difficulties there. And, um, you know, so I feel like probably the sweet spot is the forties because, <laughs> you know, forties think- are
2: fantastic. <laughs> right? Fantastic.
1: Yeah, and the fifties have been fantastic too, I have to tell you. So. Yeah, I think my husband was um, saying that, I think it's in the 40s that you make those exponential um, moves with your your salary, right? I think that's that's what they say. Um, And and for women, I I don't know, I would have to look this up to, you know, um, understand like the childbearing years, if you, like you, I I don't think I did it by intention, but yes, I had kids after PhD postdoc, so in my 30s, um, you know, those childbearing years were also time for me to negotiate my first academic salary, et cetera. And I've talked about this before that I didn't because I wanted to make sure that I added a year to my tenure clock. And I, you know, mm-hmm. was worried about all these other things um, that how am I going to do research while having a baby who, you know, my, my daughter had some medical issues at the beginning. So all of that stuff really influenced um you know, that that time period for me when I could, you know, compared to my male counterpart who, you know, bam, was able to like negotiate with that assertiveness and confidence. I had all these other things kind of pulling me down. Um, and now that I'm staying with the same you know, organization, I'm in my 40s. I'm supposed to be making this exponential climb. It just feels like it's all tough in some ways. But, you know, I, I'm glad to hear your perspective that, you know, maybe there is a sweet spot maybe coming up.
2: It's different at every phase in your life and everyone makes hopefully conscious choices and trade-offs. I would just always advise people to make them as much as possible conscious. Like given the get. And the other thing I think as a working parent is having a solid partner that supports you is so critical. I could never have done this without my husband and his support. And there are times when one of you needs more or one of you, you know, we have a his his mom has health issues now. So, you know, i be able to pick up some of the slack. It just it ebbs and flows, I think, in a good partnership, unless you decide, which is completely legitimate, that so-and-so is going to stay at home parent and the other person is going to make all the money. And I've seen that work super well, um, more and more, actually, for women being the worker I've of several executive women friends where that became the deal. They never planned it when they got married, but the woman's career just like took off or the man's career tanked in the market, you know, and they were a great father and the woman was like well i kind of love my job so I, I know so many i mean they're not involved as a mom but like the day-to-day is a lot right and so and what i love is just the freedom and then of course gay couples you know tons of gender stereotypes have been ameliorated with that which is fantastic you know you should choose based on desire talent patience <laughs> um you know all that it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating mix. I just hope everyone has the choice. That's my wish for everyone.
0: Man, I love, I love, there's been so many great nuggets. Um, and I guess we just want to end on a, a little bit lighter note. Um, and we're going to, um, so that we can get to know you a little bit better, because obviously you're super fascinating and have done a bunch of um, amazing things. But we're going to hit you with some rapid fire questions. Okay. A bit more fun. Um, so I'm gonna set the timer for a minute and just gonna ask you some questions. So we'll just see how uh, how long we can go for or how many Okay. <laughs> It'll be fun. Whatever comes to your mind.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. So what fictional character would you want
2: to have lunch with? Oh god, this is hard you guys, I love so many books. Um, <laughs> fictional character. I would say one of the any one of the women in Isabel Allende's novels, perhaps the one from Daughter of Fortune. I'm forgetting her name right now, but she was a fascinating character for me. And I love Isabel Allende's heroines. Awesome. I like her.
1: Scale of one to ten, how good are you at keeping secrets? Nine. Good good trait in a lawyer. Nickname <laughs> your parents used to call you.
2: They, they didn't. My friends call me Ames or Aim short even though amy's kind of short but, <laughs> but my parents it was amy and they're southern too so it was summer amy barnard bond like you know got the full name sometimes they were really serious what's for dinner tonight uh, we're having this yummy uh, pecan crusted
1: chicken with with um
2: like spaghetti and
1: stuff plant <laughs> place you most want to travel
2: i am going to spain and morocco in april so, I'm super excited about that. My daughter's studying abroad in Spain right now, and then I've been dying to go to Morocco, and I'm going with a, a good girlfriend
1: That'll for be several fun. weeks. So, yeah. Are you going to go down to
2: Alhambra? and? Uh, so, it's in, we're staying in Sevilla, and then because uh, that's where my daughter is. And so, I'll be there for about three and a half weeks, and then we're going to Madrid for a bit, and then I'll be in Morocco for about two weeks.
1: Wonderful. I love Spain. It's one of my favorite places I've ever been. <laughs> well thank you so much amy um, for for being on uh with by wisecast and um we have one last question for you yeah. how can our listeners connect to you
2: oh great well i love connecting with people on linkedin so my name being a funky spelling is easy a-m-i-i just very few of us so look that up on linkedin and also my website barnardbond.com uh, without the hyphen i have hundreds of free resources on my website including a free leadership assessment but I highly recommend anyone who's ambitious and interested at in any level of their career take. And if you if people want to take it further, I have a guidebook that that's available. It's a bestseller that a lot of companies and leaders and individuals have used that that's fun. And then I I post, I have a newsletter on LinkedIn plus a private newsletter. And um
1: and then I love
2: being on podcasts and getting an opportunity
1: to talk to wonderful people like you. So and I just subscribed to your newsletter. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh great. Highly recommend. <laughs> well, thank you again. We really enjoyed this conversation.
2: Thank you. Me too.
1: Thank you, as always, for listening. Support WiseCast with a monthly donation to ensure great quality feature episodes, where you can also donate to our cause using PayPal. Both are linked in the episode notes.
0: And don't forget to share your love of WiseCast with all of your friends. I am Dr. Amber Miller. And I am Dr. Richard Shankar.